Welcome from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Brighton, Bratislava, and this time Dresden. My name is Mark. And I'm David, and you're listening to the Check Your Facts podcast. Again, nice. Good to hear you. Good, good to see you again, like <laughs> virtually, David. How have yeah, you no. been? Nice to talk to you again. Uh, yes, it's been busy as always, but I was really actually looking forward to this uh, uh, podcast, to this episode, uh, like um, recording, because we have two special guests and uh, this episode will be a little bit uh, geeking about journalism, I hope at least. Um, That's what journalists do, right? Like journalists love to talk about journalism. <laughs> so it's a perfect episode for every journalist, I'd say. Okay, so uh, let me introduce our guests who, as you've heard, uh, 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 one is in United Kingdom, which is soon to be non-EU country. And the other one is in the United States of America. And uh, so welcome Madalina and Shen. Hello. Hi, thank you for having us. Okay, so I guess we could first start with, with you, Madalina, as you're closer to us. Uh, could you <laughs> tell us, who, like, could, could you tell us your whole name? Because I'm, I, I, so, so if I get it right, it's uh, Madalina Chobanu, right? Yes, uh, my name is Madalina Chobanu and the name, I'm from Romania, which is why uh, the name has those weird symbols uh, <laughs> on top of it. Um, so I'm a reporter at journalism.co.uk in Brighton. And our second guest, Shen Wang, is, is that correct? Yes. Hi. Yeah, I'm Shen Wang. I'm a staff writer at the Neiman Journalism Lab. Uh, it's based at the Neiman Foundation and that is based at Harvard. Nice. So we have two guests who both write about journalism for journalism outlets and, uh, one is uh, EU based and the second one is uh, US based and um, uh, I, I guess we could start again with the with Madalina you and telling us about because uh, when we were preparing for this episode I'm sure our, uh, everyone listening knows both uh, uh, the websites uh, journalism.co.uk and neimanlab.org and bo everyone is following those uh, but I, I feel there is a, a little bit of a different approach in um, writing about journalism and covering topics. So if Madalina, you could uh, just briefly, in, in your opinion, tell us like what, what do you think journalism.co.uk is doing? So I think both journalism.co.uk and Nima Lab uh, obviously cover media innovation and there is quite a, a bit of crossover in terms of the topics that we cover. We, journalism.co.uk, uh, in spite of the name, tries to cover innovation in journalism outside of the UK. It was primarily founded with uh, the aim of covering uh, innovation in the UK, but we try to cover uh, things, interesting things happening with organizations and journalists in, in Europe and outside of Europe, even the US, Asia and in other parts of the world. Um, so I think in terms of to give you a bit of an overview of what our audience is like, uh, which might be one of the differences between journalism.co.uk and Imalab, is that our audience isn't just uh, sort of established um, journalists and editors. It's a mix of those two categories, um, but also journalism students. 
So people who the profession who are looking for their first job or first internship, first freelance uh, assignments. It's also freelancers um, and it's also other people in the communications industry sort of interested in, in what's happening and following media innovation. Okay, that sounds very, very interesting. And uh, yeah, what about Chan? What about your your work? Do you do you say that Neiman Lab does the same, or do you have a different approach? We do cover some of the same topics, and of course, I read journalism.co.uk pretty regularly. And um, funny story, uh, we we um, have a section on our site that's um, what we're reading, and we link to other coverage of topics that we're interested in, and we often link to Madalena's stories, but the um, The accents in her name break our font, so we have to go in and remove them specifically before we can add her stories to our newsletter. So I'm sorry and ashamed about that. Um, um, no, it's actually quite funny that you mentioned that because I remember once, I think it was once, and the, the accents were actually in my name, and I remember tweeting, I think it was um, Joseph, saying, oh, thank you so much for you know putting my accents in, even though yeah, I no, don't no, actually no. mind, but um, no, that, that's really funny. And it happens to you, other CMSs, so don't worry. Yeah, it just makes the A very large. <laughs> so we we do we do cover a lot of the same topics. Um, we're focused primarily on, as Madalena is as well, innovation in journalism. And um, recently, we've been very interested, partly because we've gotten some grant money to cover this, but um, innovation that's happening not just in the U.S. So particularly looking at non-English speaking countries. Um, it's been it's been interesting because people in the U.S. are a little bit more attuned, I would say, of as of the recent months to issues that have kind of plagued other countries for a long time. Um, fake news, misinformation, disinformation, uh, reliance on social media. There's been sort of this convergence of fear and worry all across the world. So we've been doing a lot of work around that, um, around media literacy. And we don't have um, a jobs section. So I don't I don't think we have that audience that Madalena was referring to. So we are mostly a, a news site that posts stories every day. Okay, and if we compare the size of the newsrooms, so Madalena, journalism.co.uk, how, how, how big is your, like, um, your staff? So our editorial team at journalism.co.uk is three people. That includes myself, uh, Caroline Scott, who's video features editor, and Catalina Albanu, who is the international editor. And we also have a team who deals with sales and advertising and marketing. But the editorial team is just three people. And as I look at Neiman Lab, I guess there are more of you, Shen, right? Yes, I think we are two more than that. So our director, Josh, our deputy editor, Laura, we have a colleague, Ricardo, in Chicago, and here in Cambridge, there's also, there's me, and then there's Joseph Lichterman. First of all, I thought you were much bigger, both of you. <laughs> I don't know why, but um, I think, I guess it's like everything I read, I, I always think well, there, there must be more people behind this, but yeah, then you're pretty good, I guess. <laughs> and my question is, um, how do you finance your work? What What concepts do you have to keep your websites running maybe madalina starts again yes so um journalism.co.uk is a for-profit company so um we make money from sponsored content and also from uh events we run a digital journalism conference in london uh two or three times a year called news rewired 
And we also have some other sections of the website, like Shan was mentioning. We have a job section, so that's where we advertise uh, journalism jobs, and that's one of the revenue streams. And we also have uh, training that we do, so journalism training, which we do in-house, meaning we send the trainer into a newsroom and they conduct training with just journalists from that organization. Or open training, we run courses in Brighton and London that anyone can uh, sign up to and pay, uh, pay for a ticket and attend. And we also have a press release distribution service. So it's a mix of sort of like, I want to say five different revenue streams. We, I, we, we really admire what you guys do. Um, especially with such a small staff, it's actually quite amazing because we have kind of the cushiest business model in journalism, which is we are based at a large, a large institution, um, and we're cushioned by, we're cushioned by that. Um, so our 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 funding, I guess, comes from the Neiman Foundation, and we get some funding and support from the Knight Foundation, and we have as i mentioned we have this outside grant um so we get small amounts of money to cover stories outside the us and that is how we support our work yeah it's it's very interesting because we always have this like differences between public and private um, like publishers broadcasters whatever and we always talk about how how they manage to finance their work so it's it's interesting to see that you both have completely different like models uh, and still work like very nice work out very nice things and and do the same but with completely different financial backgrounds um and i wonder and we always talk about this because apparently no one has the like the right solution for how to finance um, journalism in the future but um i follow several lists on twitter that say, uh, or they, they, they're called like the future of journalism and innovation in journalism. And I always find your names, like the names of your companies there. And so it always comes to my mind when you are on those lists and people think that you are kind of connected to the future of journalism. Do you have a solution or an idea of how to, how to, how to manage to finance journalism in future? I'm sorry that I drop such a big bomb at the beginning of the podcast <laughs> we kind of came there <laughs> i think uh, if we i can't speak for shan but if i had a solution i would gladly share it with everyone uh, who is uh, struggling with this which is literally every organization in journalism but i think the kind of not solution but the kind of bright approach or key is not to rely on one single revenue stream and even um, like Shan was mentioning, being funded by a foundation and being a nonprofit can can have its advantages, obviously. But in the UK, uh, for example, the landscape of philanthropic uh, journalism funding and like nonprofits is quite different to that in the US. So there are um, much fewer foundations um, available and open to funding journalism. I was actually at an event um, a few weeks ago discussing exactly this, and they brought funders and grantees into the room to sort of discuss their needs and how they can help each other. And one thing that came out of it is that journalism in the UK is not even sort of recognized as a um, charity cause or like a philanthropic cause. So um, investigative journalism doesn't really count as a if you have an organization that does investigative journalism, you can't apply for a charity status in the UK at least, or that's not something that's been done yet. And obviously that affects um, organizations to be able to apply for, for non-profit funding. So um, Full Fact, which is a fact-checking organization in the UK, I think they've been one of the few who've been successful and managed to get um, the status of, of charity being approved as a charity. 
but again, that sort of makes a difference. And obviously, the smart idea is to try to get funding from from different avenues. I think uh, not having advertising is probably, you know, quite quite risky. I know some people do, and they have succeeded uh, in having a model that's not relying on advertising. But I think a mix of advertising and grants, if possible, if if your uh, organization qualifies, and also memberships is probably um, the way to to go, in my opinion. Yeah, speaking of memberships, there's been some interesting work here in the U.S. Um, around. Uh, I'm actually doing a story on this right now, so this is top of my mind. But um, the News Revenue Hub, which is this group that was created and spun off of the Voice of San Diego, um, which is a San Diego-based news nonprofit. And what they do is they are basically helping outsource the membership work, um, taking on the technical overhead for smaller news organizations. So they, for a fee, help you with messaging and help you with reader surveys and help you with Salesforce installation, helping you hone how to start your campaigns, basically your membership drives. And they've they've been quite successful and all the news organizations I've spoken to, they've been very happy with being a part of this. So The Intercept is a part of this. Um, Voice of San Diego obviously started it, but the Honolulu Civil Beat, Inside Climate News. So there's been, there's been some good development in that area. Um, what I think worries me sometimes about, at least in the US, and I don't know if this might be true elsewhere, the kind of focus on paid content and the push that good journalism must be paid for is is great. And it's been accelerated since our election in November. But there, there are people who cannot afford to pay for your stories. And there are people who cannot access it in any sort of easy manner. And those are people who are getting increasingly left behind. Um, and I, I am not sure... <laughs> how that goes um so the 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 business model and the innovations in making journalism sustainable are, are kind of leaving behind certain groups of people actually large groups of people so we're innovating in one way and losing some audiences in others i don't know if madalena had some thoughts about what it looks like in the uk and in Europe more broadly. I agree. Actually, this is really funny that I just got off the phone with Mary from Voice of San Diego because I'm doing a story on the same thing. So uh, Great. <laughs> this is what we we're saying at the beginning that sometimes overlaps like this happen. Yeah. Um, which is great. But I, I completely agree with what you said. And um, I was actually speaking to someone recently. Um, they have sort of a startup and they're trying to kind of uh, change the role of the foreign correspondent. So kind of change that approach a bit and and they, they're a team of, uh, I think, less than, than 10 people. And um, we were we were discussing even the business model and even Coda Story, which is another startup in Europe. And I, I know you've written about it as well at Neiman Lab. Um, this is where you have to have memberships, I think, but not in a paywall sort of way. So not those types of memberships and subscriptions that block people from accessing your content if they can't afford to pay a certain amount because that totally happens. Not everyone can afford to. And this is why sort of voluntary donations is, is kind of the best of both worlds, I guess, because you know that you get people paying you and, and paying you money to read your content and supporting you because they are actually committed to what it is you, you're producing and the quality and the topics that you're exploring as opposed to 
you know, uh, having them pony up a certain fixed amount of money every every month, even though there might be, I don't know, months when they don't really read that much or where they have some disappointments with uh, with your um, content. I was reading uh, last night the public editor uh, column in the New York Times, I think the most recent one, discussing kind of defending the Times position to publish uh, the pictures of the Manchester attack. And I was going through the 400 comments they had um, and they were actually really good, insightful comments and people actually, you know, had opinions and they were valid opinions and they had the, the facts to back them up. And I, I saw quite a lot of them sort of saying, I've been reading the Times for 30 years, but this is so disappointing, the fact that you won't admit that this was a mistake, so I'm going to unsubscribe. So this is what you can get, I guess, at, at some point if you are, you know, if you have a paywall, but I guess voluntary donations is sort of a different different way, the best of both worlds, to put it like that. As you were saying, to diversify, since a lot of these organizations <laughs> are also getting the bulk of their funding through through foundations and through benevolent billionaires, if, if we can put it that way. Yeah. It's interesting because um, you both mentioned memberships and subscriptions. And I'm wondering, especially when you look at the US with Trump, uh, at, at the UK with with Brexit and at mainland Europe with all the right wing political organizations and parties, and hence a certain loss of reputation for journalists. How do you how do you want to manage to get more subscription members when, on the other hand, uh, people just get more and more uncomfortable with the way uh, how journalists work and how yeah, especially how the like reputation is because it certainly changed in the last I don't know few months or even few years. What do you say? How do you get members to, or how do you get people to become members and to subscribe if they, if you lose like reputation and and stuff? Um, I think this kind of goes back to one of the other questions that you had on the list, which is what what is the biggest sort of problem in journalism? I can't say if it's the biggest, but it's certainly something uh, that's been on everyone's mind, and we keep hearing about it, which is. Uh, you know, obviously misinformation, fake news, and related to it, the the loss of trust. But I think the the answer to that is that we have to keep uh, thinking of ways to build and regain that trust and keep educating our readers. And there is more transparency needed uh, in how stories and investigations and projects are produced. Uh, obviously, you can't do that with, with every story, especially if you're doing a, an investigation where you don't know yourself as a journalist what the results will be. But I think as much as you can provide uh, throughout and even at the point where you get started, uh, Reuters is doing something um, in, in this respect with they have a new platform called Backstory and they're going to try to explain to their readers how they did the research for a certain story, um, what, what kind of data they used, if, you know, how did they come across that data, who are the key sources in, in the story. So I think this is definitely a good a step in the right direction and something that we need more of because people are questioning i think everything at the moment and even if you you know had a lot of trust in an organization that you were following a title that you were following for a long time it's still kind of in the back of your mind probably that you would like to know more about how they got to that conclusion or why they chose to report on this and not this um so i think this is something we need more transparency and more this is how we are reporting on this um, and more asking readers to contribute themselves even like when you know you are going to start a story or investigation on something if you're at the point where you can make it public 
I think it's a good idea to ask your members or readers or anyone to, to just get involved if they know anything about it, if they know other people who, who would have experience related to a topic you're discussing, or if you have a lot of data, ask them to help you look into the data because I think this resulted from Panama Papers as well when they made, uh, ICIJ made uh, public their database for everyone to kind of access and look at the data. There were stories that came out of that that, you know, uh, people on the team hadn't necessarily considered or they didn't have enough time to look at the, the amount of data uh, in, in that investigation. Is that, Chan, is that a way to encourage the people who, um, who, about you, to, uh, who you talked about earlier, the people who we just kind of lose or it looks like we lose them because like everything is mixed up. Yeah, I, I agree with Madalena on all counts. And I also do think um, not not that there's not a huge amount of distrust with regards to the news media, but I also do think that there that um, those the narrative is not quite so simple and that I think recently the American Press Institute did a study around how people actually feel more favorable towards their specific news outlets. When you ask them about specific news outlets, they tend to consume. So it's it's kind of a correlative, you know, people here hate Congress largely, but they actually like their individual Congress person who represents them. So there has been, I think, since the election especially, a solidifying of mission and purpose and news organizations have found that very good pitch. Um, it's been, I, I, they've, I mean, at least the national ones have reaped rewards and have kind of taken the right lessons. So a lot of these audience engagement efforts that Madalena also talked about are top of mind for a lot of news organizations. I actually am, something that I've been thinking about is you know what happens when when at least here when the administration changes in four years um well who, I, I don't know four years let's say four years um it the, right now a lot of organizations position themselves it pretty clearly as as opposition i would say and it, who knows what that will look like when there is a new administration and what will that pitch be to audiences um I, yeah i i'm not quite sure what things will look like even a few months out at this point it's been it's been an interesting time everything it's is so confusing confusing is it? <laughs> so yeah it's a, a nice vocab <laughs> because i mean um when we we can't look into the future but when a president keeps on calling everyone fake news who is not just his opinion I think it will have a kind of impact on how the people think about media and media organiza organizations. Uh, so we need we need some plans to to fight to fight so uh, yeah the, the wrong sayings of of actually one of the most dangerous no not sorry it's, it's a wrong vocabulary <laughs> um, yeah one of the yeah most influential people in the world so. I have no idea. I mean, David, maybe you have an idea how we how we can overcome this trust, this losing of trust and, and stuff. But I don't have an I think in, in one of the further episodes, we will always talk about this again. I mean, this podcast is called Check Your Facts Podcast. And we hear Mr. Trump invest every time. So, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea. It's, it's funny you touched the point. Um 
where uh, you, you, Shen and Madalina, where you said that uh, actually it's um, getting harder for some communities to get to news because you have to pay for them. And um, uh, there, there was recently this um, uh, article by Ben Thompson on, on Stratechery, uh, which he said, like, it's um, we're getting back in a way to the roots of journalism where you had to pay for the newspaper to get the news dude so what what do you think about this that maybe the future is back to the history of like newspaper that you have to get have to pay to get news i don't know if this is that we're coming back to something i think we've we've very much left that old model um at least we've left the in the u.s we've we've there's no returning to a day when everyone is paying for a print subscription and the trucks show up and they drop their newspapers and at your front door and that that's that's not happening again um no i i meant but... <laughs> more in a way that you pay for information not like for the physical yeah. newspaper no i'd be i'd be interested to see what happens with these pushes for you know paid content models um there are just more and more organizations jumping on board the subscriptions and membership train and fewer looking to do something else um the huffington post which recently is under new leadership will be interesting to watch um since lydia polgreen actually formerly of the new york times has been sort of out saying you know she wants to return the paper to its quote-unquote blue-collar roots and kind of take a page out of the old tabloids i i don't i'm i'm not sure how that will go and that is actually not going to be one of these membership driven paywall driven subscription driven sites so they are a large-scale news organization hoping to appeal to a large base and who knows that is something that i'm curious to watch i see because in terms of um sort of revenue models at at this point if like sean was saying if there is if if an organization is not jumping on the uh board of the uh, subscription and membership train it's it's either that or it's uh native advertising so sponsored content which is something that a lot of organizations are i guess sort of prioritizing in a way in in their business model and of course you can only Uh, do that if you have a, a large audience so oh, i don't know if this is probably part of what he's trying to do we'll we'll see i guess and i guess whoever isn't doing those two is trying to monetize through video uh again advertising but like video which is something that benton at nimalab who is i think is recent or uh, a piece you know is there something that might go wrong in terms of what organizations are investing at the moment do you think uh, the question was do you think invest in this sort of thing and um, video i think he may, he may be one of the ones that you know we were investing in a, in a lot at the moment but it might not necessarily bring the i don't know the, the results we want what, what do you think then is the biggest um, problem in journalism and if you think there is a different one in us and in europe Uh, we don't have to talk about like problem. We can t- talk about an issue. And if if you think is it's the monetization problem, because um, Mark, if when we were talking before rec- recording this episode, he said 
he thinks it's it's the monetization aspect mm, but uh, you know, for for example uh, the there was the cold conference in the US and uh, the editor-in-chief uh, of New York Times Dean Becke uh, said that the biggest problem in journalism according to him is 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 uh, in local news that like local news is disappearing uh, so what what do you think Shen what's what is it in US it is that's that's definitely true and there are there are large swaths of the population that go without a quality news source and i i have i am fearful um but there are some there are there are efforts and there is philanthropy that is sort of retrained in that direction that makes me a little bit more hopeful but it's it's hard when we talk about the trump bump and all the interest these national publications have been getting this same interest is not exactly flowing to your local newspaper but There, there. That said, there are there are very interesting local efforts, and I'm, I'm particularly bullish about um, public radio and the reach of public radio. There have been a lot of really interesting experiments done by public radio stations to reach out to audiences, especially in kind of news desert zones. Um, but uh, a couple of experiments have been seeing some success here in the US although we're not quite sure if they they scale necessarily but startups like Billy Penn in Philadelphia um, and Charlotte Agenda although they tried to I think recently move to it add another city and that didn't quite work out um, it was just basically too much work to stay profitable um, and in Miami, you have Nootropic, um, all of these startups are kind of focusing on their communities and focusing on not just delivering news and information, but kind of encouraging a sense, a true sense of community and of civic engagement. And that in some ways is returning to an old idea of your local newspaper being, being a, a hub or a, a way that encourages people to participate, whether it's local elections or in local events. So I, I, I feel I feel generally sad and scared for local news, but also the amount of sadness and scariness that sometimes I think we show in our writing, uh, people have taken notice of, and there are lots of people working on it. So I have to be hopeful. So you agree that local news is one of the biggest problems, or do you have <laughs> another? I agree that I agree that the the tension away from local news and the way news has always been funded is is not is not working for for small towns and small cities. And I mean, even for the Boston Globe is it, it's not so easy for them in a large city as the largest regional paper to make things work. So I, I agree it is it is a large problem and, and, and the most important problem, I would say, to kind of address. Um, Madalina, what do you think uh, for Europe? What would you say? Or is there a difference um, I, between Europe and UK? Um, I think I can speak for the UK uh, and I can say that local news is one of the main issues uh, here as well, alongside what we've already discussed, monetization and trust. But local news is being, so local news organizations, papers are either shutting down or 
you know, they, there's not enough resources, both financial and human, to, to carry on, and, and that's such a shame. And there have been initiatives, so organizations like the Bristol Cable in Bristol or the Ferrets in Scotland, so they've they've recently uh, launched a couple of years ago, I think, uh, with an, a model like a media cooperative. So you're actually giving people uh, the chance to, to own the organization in a, a very tiny proportion. So they, again, they are funding you, but they are funding something that they genuinely sort of believe in, something that's relevant to them, to their community. And I think their, their efforts and what they've done, they've produced some really good investigations and really good stories. And I think that's, it's encouraging to see that it's working, um, but again, it's something that hasn't happened in all regions around the UK, and I'm sure there are underserved regions. And something that I think is really good right now that's happening is the um, Bureau for Investigative Journalism. They've launched this thing called the Bureau Local, which is which is part of it, and they got uh, funding from Google DNI, Digital News Initiative or Local, and they have a team of journalists and an editor and they go uh, around the country and work with these hyper local and local outlets and community papers to help them do the stories and investigations that they can't necessarily do on their own because they don't, they can't afford to or they don't have the the human you know the manpower to do it i huh. feel i feel in europe uh, i'm uh, mark you can tell me like what's in germany but like in europe is cities like like all these like small countries if if i'm not counting germany france and spain like they they have like kind of like the, the biggest papers in slovakia are considered would be considered in us or in uk a local local news because like the the audience is that big so so people around here talk more about uh, uh how to get um, like more 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 subscribers or how to build membership models so and that's something i keep hearing and not really local news i mean even in even in germany um i think we have a very good structure and a very very wide i would say net of regional and and more local newspapers um, but we also have le- like these federal or even bigger newspapers reporting like what's up in Germany and the world. Uh, but still, the, I think we have a pretty good basis in the local areas. But the problem of the monetization, and that's what uh, what I meant when I said that I think that one of the biggest problems for journalism is monetization is that they lose subscribers and they don't know how to pay their reporters. Um, they don't know how to grow the online editorial teams they just don't know how to build up innovative teams who come up with new ideas so they have the problem because they their financial background is actually subscriptions of newspapers and you know everyone who reads newspapers is as hard as it sounds but um, they're going to die and so no new um, subscribers come up because the young people obviously get their news via i don't know snapchat um whatever and so the problem is they don't know how to to manage to finance their stuff and that's that's the problem and then we go come back to the problem of of local news because when when the newspapers are dying um we don't and that's what uh, shan said um, we just lose a certain amount of people like in the in the more local areas 
And I would I would ask you, you three, actually, a question. What, what do you think? Because uh, Madalena talked about it, like uh, with um, with native advertising, and I think there is kind of a gap between uh, things like native advertising and transparency and trust. On the other hand, because like native advertising often seems like normal. Um, editorial content and so keeping that in, in balance seems to be really hard so how, how do we manage to be like trustworthy and transparent but on the other hand get money with things like native advertising because that's what advertisers like obviously um i think native advertising uh can work and i have seen organizations uh making it work and doing it in a way that you know the, the design is nice the user experience is nice the actual content is interesting so i think that's what you need to, to get to in order to to make people want to you know scroll down the page if it's a, an interactive experience or depending on what the format is uh, i think wall street journal they did a few um, i know the outline um who's newer they they um have done quite a big push into native advertising and their design is, is always um, seamless when you switch from an actual editorial article to a sponsored um, post but i think you have to make it again I think people are willing to, and even myself as a news consumer, I am willing to look and interact with a sponsored post or uh, any kind of whatever the, the format is, as long as it's nicely designed and it doesn't just you know pop up when you're trying to read something uh, or disrupt your reading experience in any way. And also when it's, it's clearly... Um, you know, framed as a sponsored post. So I think, again, transparency is something that matters. And, if you know, if you're straight up with your readers and say this is, you know, a sponsored post and the reason why we have to do this is because this is how we can afford to do the rest of the uh, content that you, the stories that you do or that you see on the website. So I think it's a mix of transparency and explaining to your readers why it's important for them to support you in that way and also investing in the in the experience of the design but is this happening are, are like newspapers explaining why they have sponsored content on on their websites i actually haven't seen any of these explainers or or things because that's what that, that's the problem sorry um because that's what i think i i think that you have to like explain like step by step because um, and a guy who's just reading or listening to the news once a day isn't maybe um, able to like distinguish and see the difference between an editorial content bit and uh, a sponsored content bit. That's the problem. I think you you can't you can't say that everyone is seeing the difference there, although it's it looks differently or it it feels differently, but it's on the same website. You know you know what I mean. I think it needs to be clearly labeled. I know BuzzFeed, they um, they label their sponsored posts, and I think the, the author name uh, comes up as being whatever Netflix or whichever company is sponsoring the post. I don't know if they label it in a different way. Um, but the only way that it's been signaled is, is this by labeling it as a sponsored post or putting a note at the bottom or the top of the article saying, you know, this this post is brought to you in partnership with XYZ. Apart from that, I haven't seen anything else. I've seen the traditional, uh, you know, boxes that you get on newspaper websites when you are when you have an ad blocker on and you have display advertising and it comes up saying, oh, like, the, I think, I don't know, the Guardian, the Telegraph, they have this. Uh, we need we need this to support our journalism, please turn off your ad blocker. But I haven't really seen it done in any other way. But do you think in the end, uh, if it's uh, 
uh, native advertising or sponsored content which is uh, done by a trusted and good news uh, publisher for example my colleagues did uh, did a, f- a few um, sponsored um, pieces and they were like really like newsworthy informative and people tended to like share them in hundreds and and i'm not not sure if the readers uh, were distinguishing as you said mark if it was like native advertising or not but if it was a good content like newsworthy informative i i think they were okay with that and i would be i'm always kind of surprised when i know that all of us work in this field and are pretty pretty attuned to what is sponsored content what isn't and what is native and what is not but i i talk to pretty informed friends of mine even who don't realize that something is paid for by a company or was commissioned um that's and was created by the agency arm of a news organization i think a lot of my friends are confused by some of courts's really objectively very wonderful and nice to read experiences so i just yeah i sometimes i forget that we we spend a lot of time thinking about this but maybe for other people it's actually it is quite confusing i know many friends and as as shen said even like educated people cannot distinguish which post on facebook is uh, promoted and which is like not and that's like where they spend a whole lot of time Yeah, I think it's interesting because like Shan said, we spend all our time writing about this and looking into it, so we know. But yeah, I, I agree. I have uh, friends and I've spoken to people who don't necessarily are not able to tell because the experience are experiences are crafted in such a, you know, nicely designed way and it looks a lot like a traditional story. Uh something related to this that I find fascinating and I want to hear your guys take on it is um basically you know the the problem of i read this on facebook which a lot of people apparently say news consumers when they read a story on facebook they don't seem to recall the brand like the news brand that produced the story they don't recall if it's the guardian or the new york times and if they tell their friend oh i read a, a story about trump firing comey and you know oh where did you read that on facebook so apparently this is also a, another issue to do with kind of connected to trust and and what people actually remember when they consume you know stories uh on on platforms that are not the publishers on website yeah that, that's actually that's what i thought and i think we could discuss this like for another two or three hours because it's such a big field but that's exactly what i think the people just realized that they were on a certain website and read something but they don't remember because i think they don't want to remember if it was whether it was um just sponsored or, or not and that comes back to trust uh, reputation and so on and transparency as well um but still who's reading big the transparency disclaimers and so on on websites <laughs> i think that's a, a thing that journalists like to talk about and i think it's important but uh, i think we talk more about it than everyone else is noticing it on our websites but still it's a big question uh, of of modern journalism and monetization and yeah we unfortunately um come to an end or have to come to an end because it's it's been such a long time uh, and a very nice time but i don't want to let you go 
before David has the honor to ask the last question of the day for you guys. <laughs> okay, thanks, Mark. So the the last question we both want to ask, you know, just me is like, what do you think is the next big thing in journalism? Oh, I always, <laughs> I feel bad answering this question because I, <laughs> I think I'm in a very cushy position and I, I just sit around all day and pick out the rising stars and don't have to worry about it myself. <laughs> um, but I, I am very, as I was mentioning earlier, heartened by some of these local and local-based startups here in the U.S., but also around the world, actually. Um, but in the U.S., I, there's, and I am thinking of this only because one of the co-founders and one of the people who runs it now is a former Neiman Fellow, um, the Evergrey in Seattle, which is part of Nootropic, a company based in Miami. But they are starting as a newsletter, and they've had this very um sort of on the ground approach they they run a lot of events and reach out to their their readers they do writing groups they have gone on field trips with some of their readers they've organized meetups um it's it's been it's been lovely to see and quite heartening actually to see kind of a new organization start that way with their community and their readers in mind so i i'm i'm interested in these sorts of efforts and i have i have a lot of hope for them so you should and say that they do pe well. people should come to neiman lab and uh, read uh, more about the new tropic right yeah and we we have a lot of stories about community engagement and audience engagement efforts and we're at neimanlab.org and subscribe to our newsletter which you can subscribe to the daily one or the one that comes out once a week nice It was really smooth. Um, thank you. Um, Madalina, what do you think? Um, I'm like Sean, I'm always a bit wary of answering this question, but I I think it's not, I think the next big thing, if we can call it that, is not going to be some sort of technological advancement, even though VR, AR and other uh, technologies are obviously being invested in. But I think it's actually going to be more collaboration, which sounds maybe not so excited, uh, exciting as, as a new technology does. But I think that's actually what we're seeing a trend towards. And obviously, Panama Papers, again, was a big part of this. But I think there is more to be considered uh, in terms of organizations pulling the resources together and their expertise to serve uh, the readers better, which is what we ultimately want. And that's probably how we're going to take those steps to regain trust. And I would like to see more collaborations between organizations. Uh, I haven't seen that many in, in Europe and the UK, or if uh, there are, I just haven't come across them yet, but I hope to find them. There, I've seen a lot of collaborations between freelance journalists, like cross-border investigations, cross-border projects, but I'm hoping to see more collaboration between uh, community outlets and national organizations, or even you know smaller outlets between themselves. So I, that's something that I'm, I'm uh, most interested in at the moment, and I hope it keeps evolving. Wow, great. And uh, I guess you also want to tell our, our listeners that they should check out all this stuff at journalism.co.uk, right? Yes, you can check out the website at journalism.co.uk. We also have a weekly podcast where we discuss similar topics to what's being discussed in the stories. So you can listen to that. 
uh, and subscribe to the daily newsletter. Awesome. Wow. Wow. Thank you very, thank you very, very much. And if the listeners are curious about uh, the future of newsletters, I just want to remind you that we had Nikki Hoffland on the podcast and you can re-listen it on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, just search for Check Your Facts and then you find all the episodes, including the one about newsletters, daily, weekly, whatever. You can listen to what Nikki, David and Henrik are talking about. <laughs> yeah, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, as Mark said. Uh, you will find us in iTunes. And uh, also you can check out our website, which is checkyourfacts.eu, uh, EU as in European Union. And uh, my big thanks to our guests. Uh, thank you, Shen, and thank you, Madalina, to being on this podcast. Thank you, ladies. Uh, I say goodbye to the US and to the UK and David, what should never be forgotten? You should always check your facts, guys. <laughs> okay, th thank, thank you guys. <laughs>